Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. My name is Finn DeWire and this is The War of Independence, Part 18. This episode begins three back-to-back shows that take us through one of the most intense periods of the war. In this podcast and the coming two shows, we will cover such important events as Bloody Sunday, the Kilmichael Ambush and the burning of Cork City. We'll also meet some of the most famous names in the war. Today, we'll become reacquainted with Sean Tracy and Dan Breen, while we'll meet new figures such as Kevin Barry, as well as a host of lesser-known but fascinating people. Now, while all that's ahead of us today, I've some great news. On Saturday, November the 6th, I'm organising my first live podcast in nearly two years, and it's going to be a really special event. I've the ultimate venue for a live history podcast, and it's an 800-year-old medieval church, which was built around the year 1200, right here in the heart of Kilkenny, which houses the Medieval Mile Museum today. Now, while this building seeps history, I have a really special night planned for November the 6th. The show is going to be themed around the War of Independence, but it's all new content and in a format like no other live podcast. So whether you consider yourself a history fan or just love podcasts and live events, you'll really love this show. We'll kick off with a very special guest, Dr. Regina Donlan, who's currently researching migration during the War of Independence. And she'll be talking about how returning emigrants played a role in the War of Independence. I'm really looking forward to this because she has a lot of fascinating stories about people from the period who are rarely talked about. Then, after a short intermission, the show will change tack into a very different form, which I'm also really excited about. So for the second half, the actor Aidan Crow will join me on stage. Now, you know Aidan. Throughout the series on the War of Independence, he has brought the past to life through his narrations of letters, diaries and accounts from the war using his extraordinary repertoire of accents. Now, on November the 6th, before a live audience, hopefully including you, myself and Aidan will turn the clock back 100 years, transporting you to Ireland during the revolutionary period. While I'll provide the history, Aidan will allow you to hear the voices of people who lived through the War of Independence. It's going to be an amazing experience. It's kind of history from the driving seat of those who lived through some of the most fascinating events of the 20th century. 
It's going to be a really great evening and one not to be missed. I really hope you can join me here in Kilkenny on Saturday, November the 6th. The location, as I said, is pretty unique, but naturally, given it's an 800-year-old church, tickets will be limited. Now, supporters of the show on Patreon and Acast Plus have already had access to tickets for a few days, so I'd strongly recommend getting yours now as they are, as I say, limited. You can get tickets today at historyshow.eventbrite.com. That's historyshow.eventbrite.com. I have a link in the show notes below. Now, let's turn to the episode itself and the year 1920. Additional research on the episode is by Sam McGrath. Sound is by Jason Looney. And additional narrations are from Aidan Crow and Therese Murray. On October the 11th, 1920, the Republican activist Kit Fleming left her home in Drumcondra, making her way into Dublin city centre. As she left her house, she noticed an unusual man following her. However, this wasn't surprising. The fact the Fleming's home had served as an IRA safe house had brought Kit and her family to the attention of the authorities. Indeed, the house had been raided in recent weeks, so it was no surprise the police continued to monitor the family. Ignoring the agent, Kit went about her business, eventually going to the cinema in the city centre. As it happened, while she watched a film, two men who had frequently stayed in their house sat down in front of her. Instantly, Kit recognised Dan Breen and Sean Tracy, who, by October 1920, were two of the most famous IRA volunteers still at large in Ireland. Although they were among the most wanted men in the country, the two had avoided capture for nearly two years, roving between their native Tipperary and Dublin. Over that period, the reputations of both men had cast them as larger-than-life figures in the Republican movement. Although, that said, even allowing for embellishments, Breen and Tracy's exploits were extraordinary. As covered in previous episodes, they had emerged from relative obscurity back in January 1919, when they had fired what many regarded as the opening shots of the war at Solahead Beg in Tipperary. Then, a few months later, they had saved their comrade Sean Hogan in a daring rescue at the Knocklong Ambush. In December 1919, they had travelled to Dublin, where the two, along with volunteers from the Dublin Brigade of the IRA, had narrowly missed the Viceroy of Ireland, Lord John French, in an audacious ambush. While they had spent much of 1920 back in their native Tipperary, they had returned to Dublin in September. However, it was immediately obvious to Kit Fleming the city was not treating them well on this occasion. She had been taken aback by the haggard, dishevelled appearance of Breen and Tracy in the cinema that afternoon. When they got chatting, Tracy told her they were famished, having only received a cup of milk for breakfast in the safe house where they had stayed the previous night. Further to this, he told her, they too were being followed and the fatigue of constantly looking over their shoulder was taking a toll. The two had actually come into the cinema in order to get some rest. Looking at the two starving, jaded men, Kit faced a dilemma. Breen and Tracy were clearly in need of food and rest, but her family had been warned by the IRA Chief of Staff, Richard Mulcahy, that their home was not safe for wanted men. 
and there were scarcely more wanted people than these two in front of her. Indeed, the very fact she had been followed that morning confirmed that the house was still being watched by the police, but against her better judgment she felt compelled to ask Breen and Tracy to come to her home where she could feed them and arrange for better accommodation. The dangers of this course of action were apparent on leaving the cinema. On the street outside, Kit noticed the man who had followed her earlier in the day, while Dan Breen later claimed he too noticed British agents on the street. However, perhaps because they were so hungry and tired, they threw their caution to the wind and went to the Fleming's home in Drumcondra. And to their relief, as they continued their journey, the agents vanished. In Drumcondra, the weary Breen and Tracy finally found comfort and a meal, but there was no denying the war at large was changing. While it would be an exaggeration to say that IRA volunteers like Breen and Tracy had been able to act with impunity through 1919, they had certainly had the better of the early phase of the conflict. In several counties, like their native Tipperary, the authority and power of the British government had more or less disintegrated as the Republican movement organised boycotts and the IRA launched attacks. This had given the likes of Breen and Tracy, who were constantly on the run, greater freedom of movement. Meanwhile, in 1919 in Dublin, the police had been paralysed when the IRA killed several high-profile detectives in the city. Weeks after Breen and Tracy had nearly killed the Viceroy, Lord French, in December 1919, he bemoaned the fact that British intelligence in Ireland was almost non-existent. However, it was apparent by the autumn of 1920, as they sat in the Fleming's house, that this situation had changed. While they had been relentlessly followed throughout the day, the Crown forces had become much more aggressive in general in recent months. The arrival of the efficient General Neville Macready to take control of British forces in Ireland earlier that year allowed for the sidelining of Lord John French, whose abilities had always been at best limited. Then, in the spring and summer, the completely demoralised police, the Royal Irish Constabulary, had been boosted by the arrival of the Black and Tans, and then the more elite auxiliary division. These better armed veterans of the First World War were far more aggressive in their attitude toward the IRA than the old Royal Irish Constabulary had been. Indeed, this was apparent for Breen and Tracy, given they weren't able to even rest long in the Fleming's house before the reinvigorated Crown forces were again on their trail. Later that same day, when Kit Fleming's brother and sister arrived back at the house, they brought the news that there was now an agent outside the door again, the same man who had followed Kit into Dublin earlier in the day. Given Breen and Tracy clearly couldn't sleep at the house, arrangements were made for the two to stay with a Republican sympathiser, Professor John Carlin, who lived in a house known as Fernside, just a few minutes away. Before the two volunteers were moved, Kit Fleming's brother, Michael, walked out the front door in the hope of distracting any agents outside. However, to his relief, they were no longer anywhere to be seen. A few minutes later, the two haggard volunteers slipped out through the rear of the house and made their way to Professor Carlin's home, who lived just five minutes away. Entering the new safe house, they were welcomed by John Carlin, and finally it seemed the two could get some much-needed rest. However, unbeknownst to Carlin, Breen or Tracy, in the darkness outside, the building was being observed. The agents monitoring Kit Fleming's house had not left after all, 
and now they were increasingly curious as to the identity of these men who were clearly trying to avoid detection. The activity that they had observed throughout the day was deeply suspicious. Kit Fleming had been followed from her home and known safe house. She had then entered the cinema in Dublin city centre, but emerged in the company of two men. They had then travelled back to her house, but left by a rear entrance, clearly trying to avoid detection. As they watched Professor John Carlin's house, the police outside in the darkness were pretty certain whoever these two men were, they had something to hide. Meanwhile, inside his home, John Carlin led the two men upstairs to a bedroom at the rear of the building. He thought this would provide the two with an escape route should it be needed. Unfortunately, however, in showing them the room, Carlin had made a grave but unintentional error when he turned on the lights to show them the bed. For those watching in the darkness outside, this had pinpointed the precise location of Breen and Tracy. After showing them to their room, John Carlin left Dan Breen and Sean Tracy to get some rest and silence fell over his house. Elsewhere in the city that night, Crown forces were being mobilised. Although unaware as to the exact identity of the two men, the agents monitoring the Fleming house had seen enough to know they were suspicious. While those inside the Carlin house were fast asleep, soldiers arrived in Drumcondra and surrounded the house known as Fernside. The household was then awoken to loud banging at the front door and immediately John Carlin, realising what was happening, rushed to warn Breen and Tracy. In a strange house, in the pitch dark of winter, the two men, dog-tired from months on the run, had no option but to break their sleep and prepare for a fight. There was a faint hope, perhaps, that John Carlin, with his stature as a professor in St. Patrick's College, could somehow convince the military they were mistaken. However, as he descended the stairs, the glass pane in his front door was smashed in across the hall floor and the officer in command outside, a Major Smith, shouted through the broken window, The names of the men staying with you. Quick, who are they? In some accounts, he also demanded to know if Richard Mulcahy, the chief of staff of the IRA, was present. If true, this confirmed that he knew who was living in the house as Mulcahy had lived in Fernside for a time years earlier. Now for John Carlin, his concerns surely turned to the others in the house. He presumably knew Breen and Tracy would not surrender and it was only a matter of minutes before his home would become a battleground. However, alongside the IRA volunteers, there were several others in the building, including his wife and children, as well as an elderly man asleep in the room next to Breen and Tracy. Meanwhile, the pair themselves had been left in little doubt as to the predicament they faced. While John Carlin had gone to answer the banging at his front door, a searchlight had beamed in the window of the room where they were staying from a lane at the rear of the house. This confirmed not only did the police have the house surrounded, but they knew exactly where Breen and Tracy were in the building. The two drew their weapons, and then, in the darkness, the men, who had known each other since childhood, shook hands and wished each other luck. They had been through a lot, but nothing as tight as this. Outside the room, they could hear the beginning of the search of the house. As the soldiers mounted the stairs, the tension in the room rose. The two had nowhere to go and the soldiers would at some point open the door in the room to search it. 
They then heard a somewhat faint knock from the hallway outside. It was the door to the room next door, and the muffled sounds of the soldiers questioning the elderly man asleep there broke the silence. When this conversation died away, they knew this was it. The soldiers would now search, or at least try to search, their room next. Led by a Major Smith, the soldiers outside turned towards the room where Breen and Tracy waited in the still darkness. A hand was put to the knob of the door and began to turn it. The following is the account of one of the soldiers who was standing in the hallway that night. I went upstairs and in the front bedroom I saw an elderly man in bed. Captain White joined and searched the room. I saw Major Smith open the next door and immediately there was a burst of fire from the room. And Major Smith fell. Captain White and I rushed for the door. White got it first and was shot at once. He fell back into the room. I I shut the door and covered it with my revolver while I pulled White towards the window. During this time, shots were coming through the panels and I heard a crash of broken glass and a violent burst of fire. Breen, in his characteristic foolhardy approach, then rushed onto the landing, opening fire and forcing the raiding party to retreat. In this, he suffered the first of several gunshot wounds. After briefly retreating back into the room, he rushed out for a second time, opening fire again on the advancing party, but the soldiers again returned fire, injuring Breen. Meanwhile, Sean Tracy, who had always been a far more clinical and calm man than Breen, maintained greater composure. Shouting through the darkness, he called on Breen to come back inside the room. He then told him he had identified a slim chance of escape through the back of the house. The soldiers to the rear of the building had come under fire from Tracy and their guns had fallen silent. Tracy then opened the window and helped the injured Breen out first. However, this did not give Breen the advantage Sean Tracy had hoped. Once outside the window, he landed on the roof of a glass conservatory which gave way beneath him and he crashed through the glass, cutting his legs and feet With five bullet wounds and serious lacerations to his legs, Breen had no option but to push on. Driven forward, if by nothing else, the certain knowledge that death lay behind him. Tracy, meanwhile, who had not been shot, followed Breen through the window and down through the hole in the conservatory. And although he was cut by the glass, his injuries were superficial. In the darkness, the two men were able to escape, but they couldn't locate each other. Although only half-dressed, Sean Tracy made his way to the home of a Republican sympathiser in nearby Finglas. Dan Breen, however, was gravely wounded and in no position to venture far for help. He had no option but to knock at a random door, which proved to be that of a Unionist family. However, in this instance, humanity superseded politics, and pitying the bleeding and injured Breen, the family bandaged and dressed him as best they could before sending a message to alert the Flemings, who they knew to be Republicans. In time, the Dublin IRA was mobilised in an effort to try and save Dan Breen's life. Bleeding profusely and delirious, he was clearly in need of hospital treatment. His IRA comrades had no option but to bring him to the Martyr Hospital, which was in itself a dangerous course of action. While the staff in the hospital were sympathetic to the Republican movement, getting him inside the building was difficult. Crown forces were monitoring the matter in the knowledge injured IRA volunteers in need of treatment could well end up there. Nevertheless, the severely wounded Breen was brought to a stable close to the hospital and IRA volunteers watched for an opportunity to get him inside the matter. 
It was in this stable that Breen met with Sean Tracy, who had followed them into the city. While both men had assumed the other was dead, their reunion was brief. Breen needed to be moved to the hospital urgently. Although Sean Tracy may have had his fears and suspicions, neither he nor Dan Breen fully appreciated that this was the last time they would ever see each other. Breen was carried into the Matter Hospital, his life hanging in the balance. There he joined Professor John Carlin, who had been shot in the neck during the raid. He too, like Breen, was gravely ill. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Recently, I had a minor argument with a close friend that brought up things from my past that I really needed to get off my chest. I think we've all been there. Now, I found therapy a really great way to work through these issues. For me, I really like online therapy. And BetterHelp is a really great online service that allows you to make space for therapy no matter how busy you are. BetterHelp is convenient, affordable, and gives you the support you need, but also works around your schedule. It's really easy to get up and running with a therapist on BetterHelp. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do your sessions by text, phone, or video call, whichever suits you best. It's all about flexibility, working around your schedule. At the moment, BetterHelp are offering listeners to the show 10% off their first month. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash irishhistory today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash irishhistory. Over the following 48 hours, Crown forces began a major operation to find Breen and Tracy. Houses were raided and the wider area around John Carlin's house, known as Fernside, was sealed off and everyone entering or leaving was searched. This was so intense that local people left their homes. The Freeman's Journal reported, From 5.30 to 8.30 on Tuesday evening, a large force of military guarded the approaches to Whitehall in the immediate vicinity of Fernside and searched all journeying to and from the city. Pedestrians, cyclists and occupants of motorcars were made to halt and were then subjected to a keen search. In view of Tuesday morning's startling occurrence, coupled with the unnerving effect of raids in the afternoon, a considerable amount of alarm prevailed in the district. As early as 6.30, a miniature exodus had begun. 
the people departing from what one termed this danger's zone to safer quarters in different parts of the city. In their desperate search to find the two, the military also began raiding hospitals across Dublin. While Breen was successfully hidden during initial searches of the Matter Hospital, the Dublin IRA began to fear it was only a matter of time before he would be found. While armed guards were placed on his room, it was never entirely clear what they were supposed to do in the event of the hospital being sealed off by the military for another search. Sean Tracy, for his part, remained in Dublin but stayed in a safe house far from Drunkhondra where the Carlin House was located. Over the following days, he maintained contact with the Dublin Brigade of the IRA. Plans that in many eyes symbolised the ferocity of the war in Ireland were now being drawn up. Knowing that several British intelligence officers would inevitably attend the funerals of the soldiers killed by Breen and Tracy during their escape from the Carlin House, the IRA planned to target them while they attended the Mass. This, however, did not materialise and two days after his escape, Sean Tracy travelled into Dublin city centre, making his way to a shop on Talbot Street. This premises, a clothing shop called Republican Outfitters, was a common meeting place for Republicans in the city, given it was owned by Pather Clancy, the vice commandant of the Dublin Brigade. Tracy had come to the shop to voice his concerns over Breen's safety while he was being treated in the Matter Hospital. In Clancy's shop, Tracy met with Dick McKee, the commandant of the Dublin Brigade of the IRA, and they discussed the situation with several other senior IRA figures in the city. However, while the meeting broke up, Dick McKee suddenly ran back into the shop just after he had left and shouted at Tracy, They are coming. Get out. The Crown forces had been observing the shop and a party of auxiliaries in two lorries were on their way. Sean Tracy was now faced with the challenge of yet again escaping an approaching raid. Making his way out the shop, he successfully grabbed a nearby bicycle. However, in his haste, he had not noticed that the bike was too big for him and as he tried to climb on it, he slipped and fell. It was at this point that Gilbert Price, a member of the auxiliaries approaching in a lorry, spotted Tracy and recognised him, while another auxiliary, Frank Christian, wrestled him away from the bicycle. Sean Tracy, however, had always maintained a cool head in such situations and managed to get back on his feet, drew his pistol and opened fire, immediately killing Frank Christian. However, the other auxiliary, Gilbert Price, who I mentioned previously, was now out of the lorry and lunged at Tracy before a desperate tussle began over the gun. Sean Tracy had been in this situation before. During the knock-long ambush, he had gotten the better of a prison guard during another close-quarters struggle. In this situation, he had the added advantage that Gilbert Price had already been shot in the stomach. As they wrestled, the struggle, however, suddenly ended with a burst of gunfire. Among the witnesses to this situation was the IRA volunteer, Sean Brunswick. He later recalled what happened. Sean Tracy pulled his gun and shot Christian in the stomach. Just then, the armoured car opened fire. I was in the line of fire, unarmed, and took cover. When the firing ceased, I came out and saw three men. Christian, Price, and huddled up in the corner was Sean Tracy. Desperate to help, the quick-thinking Sean Brunswick, armed with nerves of steel, approached the line of police forming up around the two men who were lying on the ground. He told them he was a trainee doctor and was offering his services to help the wounded, and the police immediately ushered him through the cordon. When he reached Sean Tracy, however, he realised he was too late. 
Brunswick remembered. I went over to him and blood was trickling down his face. Sean Tracy had been shot in the head and had died instantly. Despite the fact that Tracy was a legendary figure, Brunswick knew this was no time to mourn his loss. That could come later. Instead, he focused on the task at hand. Knowing Tracy could well have incriminating documents on him, he quickly rifled through the body. He later remembered. Anything I found in his pockets I transferred to my own. Ammunition, pens, dispatches and a field message book. While Sean Brunswick left with these documents, the death of Sean Tracy stunned the Republican movement. He was unquestionably the highest profile casualty of the war so far and killing him was a significant victory for the British government. Although only 25, Tracy embodied the Republican struggle and had seemed to many who knew him to be invincible. In an ironic twist of fate, two days later, his body was sent back to Tipperary for burial after a service in Salahed Beg Church, his native parish where his war had started in January 1919 at the Salahed Beg ambush. As significant as Sean Tracy's death was, the war, however, did not pause to appreciate his loss. Indeed, far from it, the death of Tracy, if anything, marked the start of a rapid escalation in the war in the coming weeks. Indeed, while he was being buried, the IRA in Dublin shot and killed a policeman, Daniel Roach, who had travelled up from Tipperary to formally identify his body. Then, three days after Tracy's burial, the news that Manny had been anticipating but hoping could be avoided arrived from England. The commander of the IRA's Cork No. 1 Brigade and the Lord Mayor of Cork, Terence McSweeney, had died on hunger strike in Brixton Jail. McSweeney's story is covered in episode 14 of the series. Now, his long, drawn-out funeral dominated the headlines for the coming days. Indeed, it completely obscured another death. While McSweeney's body was being returned to Cork, Professor John Carlin, who had been shot and injured in Fernside after he had given Tracy and Breen a bed to stay, died in the Matter Hospital. It was widely believed in Dublin that he had been murdered by the military in his home that night. While this only served to add to the sense of growing tension in Dublin, there was little time to process any of these events really. Carlin had scarcely been buried before people were already desperately trying to save another life that now hung by a thread from a separate incident. That was the life of a teenager, the 18-year-old Kevin Barry, who had been sentenced to death. This sentence was due to be carried out on November the 1st in Mountjoy Jail. While Dan Breen lingered on in the Matter Hospital across the road in Mountjoy Jail, the fate of an 18-year-old IRA volunteer, Kevin Barry, also lay in the balance. Back in September, Barry had been captured during a failed IRA raid on a military convoy in Dublin's north inner city. When he was eventually tried by a military court-martial on October the 20th, he had been sentenced to death. Now, the harsh nature of this sentence had stunned people across Ireland and internationally, and many expected the sentence would be commuted, given Barry was only 18 and no other official death sentence had yet been carried out during the war. However, the British government's attitude to the entire conflict was changing. Barry had, after all, been sentenced on the day Terence McSweeney had died in Brixton and while several other hunger strikers were approaching death. Indeed, when the Archbishop of Dublin, William Walsh, interceded on Barry's behalf with Neville Macready, the General refused to grant a reprieve 
pointing out that one of the British soldiers killed in the ambush where Barry was captured was in fact younger than the 18-year-old. As his execution date of November the 1st neared, the Dublin Brigade of the IRA developed two separate plans to break him out of Mountjoy Jail. However, both failed and by October the 30th it was clear nothing was going to save the 18-year-old. In the dark early hours of November the 1st, 1920, a sombre crowd gathered outside Mountjoy Jail in Dublin city centre, awaiting the sound of a bell inside the prison that would ring out to inform the city Barry had been executed. As people waited for the ringing of the church bell, the Dublin Evening Telegraph captured the poignant scene. As early as 7am, many sympathisers had congregated outside Mountjoy prison gates and by 7.30, about 2,000 people had gathered. At a quarter to eight, a company of Cumannaman marched four deep to the scene and halted outside the outer gates of the jail. A double-turreted, armoured car with its guns turned on the crowd loomed sinister in the murk of the early morning a few yards from the prison gates. Now and again it moved about the road but always the gun barrel protruding from the turret was trained on the crowd. As the fateful moments ebbed, no sounds were heard but the murmur of the people reciting the rosary for the boy about to die. Old and young, men, women and children joined in the prayer to the Queen of Heaven for the soul that was passing behind the grim grey walls of the prison. About eight o'clock, the prison bell began to toll its mournful message. An awed silence fell upon the people. Women looked at each other with eyes full of tears. The men bowed their heads still lower. The death knell rang clear on the morning air. As it echoed over the heads of the people, the beautiful prayer of the Angelus was taken up by them in brave, steady tones. The prayer ceased. There was a tense moment. The bell was still tolling. In a little while, it ceased. While Barry's execution would cause consternation across the world, in Ireland... Events elsewhere on November the 1st encapsulated the growing intensity of the war that autumn. Kevin Barry's execution was only one of multiple deaths that day, although the rest have been largely forgotten. In Kerry, the IRA launched several attacks to avenge the death of Terence McSweeney. In Tralee, they captured and shot two members of the Royal Irish Constabulary and buried their bodies near Blennerville Strand. 20 kilometres to the north at Lixna, Three constables were shot in an ambush and one died. While these attacks were carried out, as I said, in an act of revenge over the death of Terence McSweeney, the police responded in kind, taking vengeance on the wider population. In Tralee, two people were killed while shops in the town hall was burned. At Lixna, the police raided the house of Sean Houlihan, a known IRA volunteer. He was dragged out, put up against a wall and shot. His body was then bayoneted on the farm burned as his parents watched on. Now the events outlined above from Sean Tracy right through until the execution of Kevin Barry and the events that surrounded that did not just represent an intensification of the conflict but also there was a growing sense that the balance in the war was starting to tip in favour of the Crown forces in Ireland. The death of Sean Tracy embodied this. 
He and Dan Breen had been first tracked to Fernside. Then, within two days, Tracy himself had been tracked down in Dublin city centre and killed. This sense that the British were starting to gain the upper hand through more effective intelligence work was confirmed in early November when Crown forces in Dublin pulled off a major coup on the IRA. On November the 10th, auxiliaries raided a house that was at the time being used by the Chief of Staff of the IRA, Richard Mulcahy. Now, while Mulcahy himself luckily managed to escape, he left behind a case of extremely sensitive documents that were seized during the raid. These included pretty sensational plans, and in the hands of the British authorities, these proved to have an impact on the functioning of the IRA but details were also highly embarrassing to the Republican movement as a whole when they were made public. The files seized included names of several members of the IRA in Dublin, all of whom now had to go on the run. They also included detailed plans for major IRA operations in England, including an attack on the Liverpool docks and a power station in Manchester. Obviously, these operations could not go ahead as planned. There was also discussion documents examining the feasibility of biological warfare. The IRA had looked into spreading typhoid in British garrisons in Ireland by infecting the milk supply. Other documents revealed that they also looked into the possibility of spreading the fatal disease glanders among military horses. Now, The British authorities used these to full effect. Harmer Greenwood, the Chief Secretary from Ireland, read the documents in the House of Commons, while further details were released to the press. Although some of the details seemed outlandish, the documents were genuine. The IRA Director of Chemicals, James Donovan, would later confirm that the IRA had investigated spreading glanders in garrison stables, while John Plunkett, a member of the IRA's engineering department, confirmed discussions had taken place about spreading typhoid, although it does not appear to have been seriously entertained. Even though many refused to believe that these documents were actually real, the very fact that the Crown forces had tracked down Richard Mulcahy, the most senior IRA officer, was alarming. This reflected a growing trend, however, where the British were in effect turning the screw on the IRA. On a local level across Ireland, there was also growing evidence to support the fact that the British Army and the Royal Irish Constabulary were becoming more effective. Three days after the raid on Richard Mulcahy's office, In Dublin, the auxiliaries in Clare pulled off an audacious raid on a house in Killaloo. Travelling by boat, they avoided detection as they approached and caught four IRA volunteers, Alfie Rogers, Michael Egan, Michael McMahon and Martin Gildee in Egan's house, completely unawares. The four men were then taken to a makeshift barracks in a local hotel where they were tortured and then executed. The auxiliaries provided what would become a standard explanation in such events, claiming that they were shot while trying to escape. It was little wonder then, in this context, that by mid-November, Michael Collins and several other senior IRA figures in Dublin began to fear that a major roundup was on the cards. Undoubtedly, in such a situation, if the auxiliaries got their hands on leading IRA figures in the city, many would not survive long enough to see the inside of a prison cell. Unwilling to wait for their enemy to act first, the IRA began to draw plans to strike at the very heart of British intelligence in Ireland. This operation took place on November the 21st 
and led to one of the bloodiest days of the war. Tune in next week to hear the story of the events known as Bloody Sunday. Don't forget to get your tickets for my first live show in two years, which is on in that 800-year-old church here in Kilkenny. It's on November the 6th at 6pm. You can get tickets at historyshow.eventbrite.com. That's historyshow.eventbrite.com or there's links in the show notes below. Until next time, Sloan. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.